Welcome to episode 216 of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stageworthy is a podcast about people in Canadian theatre featuring conversations with actors, directors, playwrights, and more. In this episode, I will be talking to actor, writer, and nurse, Helen Knight. As I record this, it is just a few days before the holidays, and that means that 2019 is drawing to a close. As we move towards the end of the year and into the roaring 20s, we get closer to the anniversary of the first episode of Stageworthy back in January of 2016, which means that Stageworthy Podcast will be in its fourth year. You know, if you've enjoyed the podcast, whether you've subscribed or if you're just an occasional listener, I would love it if you could help spread the word about Stageworthy. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, just do me a favor and rate the podcast there. If you leave a five-star rating, you will help new people find the podcast. You know, the most common way that people find out about new podcasts is from their friends and family. So if you know someone who might enjoy Stageworthy, tell them about it. And if you tell somebody, let me know about it. You can find Stageworthy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at StageworthyPod. And you can find the website at StageworthyPodcast.com. And if you want to drop me a line, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at PhilRickaby. And my website is PhilRickaby.com. As I mentioned, my guest is Helen Knight. I got the chance to talk with Helen in the early fall. I met her this summer after she performed her solo play, The Art of Needing at the Toronto Fringe. We talked about creating a solo show, her writing process, and so much more. Here's the conversation. What 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 are you what are you rehearsing right now? Oh, um, we're, I'm uh, working on the wedding party, which I think was um, down in Toronto a couple of years ago. Okay. okay. Yes. Yeah. And where where's so, that happening? Uh, with Alberta Theatre Projects. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty great. So it's their it's their first show of the season, and oh, wow. Um, I've got. I was joking with our producer Diane because I said there's nothing. <laughs> I've worked with them for the last three years now on uh, their first show, so it doesn't feel like August unless I'm spending half of it in the rehearsal hall <laughs> with everybody <laughs> and like sunbathing during our our breaks and yeah. So it's great. Well, at least at least it it feels like like August for you. <laughs> it really does. Yeah. I know. I know people who it doesn't feel like August and. Till they're at the Ed, Ed, Edmonton Fringe, so I know I'm missing it this year. I'm so bummed. I'm really bummed about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but, it, it's, you know, you gotta, it's hard to take it all in, you know. Yeah, you got to pick it. You got to pick your battles. So, also, I mean, you you have a gig. So, as awesome as it would be to be at the at, at the Edmonton Fringe, also, it's good to have a gig. Oh, uh, it's always good to be working. Always good to be working. Yeah, yeah. So it's lovely, and the cast is freaking great, and. The show is super fun. So I, I've done dramas for the last few years. So it's nice to get to work on like a real sort of uh, madcap comedy kind of thing, like very high energy and nobody's getting tortured. There's no, you know, abuse or anything. Like it's just, you know, word up with the flowers. So is, great. is abuse <laughs> and torturing something that's been in your repertoire for a while? <laughs> This past year, um, I've done two shows of Kate Hennig's um, Virgin Trial, and there's a sexual assault scene, there's two torture scenes, it's just wow. intense. And I've done it with two different theater companies uh, twice now, so it's like, there's none of that. There's just, you know, it's kind of light and airy. And uh, Well, how nice. Yeah. How nice yeah. to have Mistake. something like that that doesn't involve <laughs> torture and abuse. And- you know what's nice? No torture. Yeah, exactly. Things only actors can say, God, I'm really so glad that all that abuse is gone for this season. I can just sort of concentrate (laughs) on something else. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this is, this is really great. I'm having a hoot. (laughs) So when did you start? uh, When, what was your entry into, into theater? What was it that made you want to do this thing? Um, I've wanted to be an actress since I was, a kid, I think, uh, you know, and I was always like, I have this distinct memory of like being very small, 
um, you know, at my parents' church and like grabbing the microphone and just heading up into the middle of the stage before the microphones got turned off at the end of the day and just kind of like singing to myself and like very happy to be up there. And so, um, you know, we used to put on plays and stage stage, you know, um, dinner theater and stuff like that for my grandparents, and my mom and stuff. So that was just sort of how my sister and I passed the time growing up, but professionally. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any sense of, of, of what, um, made you first aware of, of acting? Um, Cause that's not something that, that, that is, is common in, I, I don't want to say normal <laughs> children, but like that kind of thing, because I I was I I mean I was always putting on plays and getting roping people and putting on plays when I was a kid, um, and I'm always curious like where did you learn that? I I don't know if it was like I'm aware I'm doing a play, but we'd watch these movies over and over again, and then we'd reenact sections mm-hmm. of the movie mm-hmm. just because they captured us so much. Like we watched the Ten Commandments, uh, um, Charlton Heston, and like. Um, you know, over and over and over so much that we could recite it. And we watched Mary Poppins uh-huh. so often we could recite it and Annie mm-hmm. so often that we could re- recite it. So um, I think it was just, you know, things that captured our imagination that were super fun. And then when you get tired of singing in front of the TV, you want to do something. So that's kind of yeah. what came out. So yeah, I've always wanted, I always wanted to do that since I was a young kid, but hmm. I didn't actually do it until I was significantly older. So did you do it in school at all or? I did. I was taking band in junior high, um, playing the flute, and I was rubbish. Um, not not because I was actually terribly bad at the flute. Like I think I probably was okay, but um, I just didn't practice and I didn't care and all those other. So I s- sat my mom down and I said, "Okay, here's here's my plan. Let me take let me take drama instead." They would not let me take drama earlier on, but um, mm. I made my case. And in grade nine, my mom let me take a drama class and then I took it all throughout high school. Do you know what it was that made them not want to let you take drama when you were younger? Yeah, well, you know, a little bit complicated with my parents cuz they both um they both met in a touring theater company in the states in the 70s. That's how they got together. Oh, so they knew what was going on in the theater. Yeah, like there was this <laughs> I think like I the reason why I didn't mention that is like part of my influence is I don't think they ever like wanted to encourage us in that direction. Mm. So I'm kind of aware that that was part of their history, but there, it wasn't like, you know, the good old days kids or anything like that. Like it was just not part of the family lore or anything. Um, but yeah, they, you know, they met in this, um, small touring theater company that was based out of California. And then, you know, you sort of toured all over the States going to different small towns and stuff like that. And, um, they didn't tour together, but they met during training. Mm. And so that's, that's how my parents got together. And so um, years later, actually, when I was like, right when I was coming out of high school and trying to figure out what I wanted to do, I'm like, you know what? I think I'm going to go join that company that you guys were a part of. And my mom sat me down and just said, this is a bad idea. And this is why you shouldn't do it. And um, I listened to her. I didn't do it. Mm. I walked I walked away and I went into nursing school instead. So, How long were you in nursing school for? Uh, nursing school was a four year degree, undergraduate degree. So I have, so you did the whole thing. Oh yeah. No, I have a baccalaureate. I'm an, I'm a registered nurse and I have a baccalaureate degree in, uh, nursing sciences or whatever it is. So yeah. Yeah. I'm a BN. So what, what, whatever took you back to, uh, back to theater and acting? Um, well I did nursing for a while actually long enough to pay off my student loans. (laughs) And then, um, and then, like, I think I paid off my student loans in May, and the September they were paid off, I went to nurse, uh, to theater school. So, wow. um, yeah, it was, I, uh, it's one of those things. It's kind of, I was really sad about not being able to go to theater school. Mm-hmm. Um, I was kind of, con- part of the thing that convinced me that I wasn't able to go is we just came from very restrictive, very humble means mm. growing up, like, um, I like to like, everybody says they grew up poor for most of us, but I think poverty really is like the definition of poverty is you do not have the enough income to cover your basic needs. And that was my childhood and youth. Like we did mm-hmm. not make enough money to cover heat, rent, utilities, food, all that. And so, um, you know, we managed that because of the help of the government and mm-hmm. um, charity. And sometimes my grandparents would, you know, uh, pay for the lights to come back on, but 
you know, when you grow up like that and then mm. your mom sits you down in a cafeteria and is like, I appreciate that you want to go be an artsy fartsy person, but if you get stranded on the road, I can't help you. You can never come home for Christmas because I have no way of getting you back home. Right. And they will not pay you enough to like get you back here. And, um, and so as a kid, like growing up and often hearing like, no, you can't afford to do that. Like the, that part of the world is closed off to you because yeah, yeah. you don't make enough money. Mm-hmm. That Like it's sad how quickly I was convinced, but also like given, given the history of how I grew up and stuff like that, I was like, oh, right. Like, like art is for other people. It's not for people like us. And so I was like, okay, cool. I'll go find a degree so I can mm-hmm. get a, a reasonable job that will pay me a living wage. And so that's why I chose that path mm-hmm. of, the, of the nursing. And then nursing's great, you know, like, um, it it uh it can be rewarding and you're doing good in the world and it gives you a living wage and benefits and you know things like a lot of the, it gives you middle yes, class yeah and that's honestly like that was my second dream <laughs> <laughs> first dream was to be an artist second dream was to be middle class and so you know that somebody grew up poor when their dream is to be middle class oh my god yeah like boring white picket fence, suburban. That was my ideal. I was like, mm. that's fucking living right there. <laughs> that's the highlight right there. Yeah. Two weeks vacation. Get out of here. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, I went and I, yeah. I was a nurse and then, um, this is a long, this is a long story, but, um, no, no. Yeah. Uh, then, um, you know, I grew up in a religious household and, um, it was really random, but one day some woman came up to me in our church and she's like, I, I know this is weird, but I, I just feel like God wants me to tell you something. And I'm like, okay. And like, for real, I thought she was going to be like, you're, you're going to hell. you swear too much and you drink too much. And like, I was like, Oh shit. Like Jesus is mad at me. <laughs> Depending so, on the church, there's a 50, 50 chance. That right? could be the thing that somebody says. Yeah, I know. And so I was like, Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. And then she's like, God just wants you to know that, um, he made you with the desires of your heart for a reason. And he's big enough to handle your dreams. She's like, hmm. I don't know what that means. And like, she then hmm. fucking walked away. And I was like, what? And then, you know, I actually, I walked away and I had a really big blub because I knew what that meant for me. Because I was like, you know, I'd wanted to do this since I was a kid. So I was like, it was kind of this like, all right, buddy, well, if you're up there, let's fucking do this. And so, Mm. so I think the next, like, that was probably in early, I don't know what time of the year that was, but literally like the next semester that that Mm. could have been worked out for me. I was in school. So Mm. yeah, yeah. And we were, Alberta anyways, was in the midst of a terrible nursing shortage. So I walked up to my boss and I just asked for a leave of absence for nine months and she gave it to me so long as I was going to come back. Mm. (laughs) She's like, are you, are you leaving for forever? Are you coming back? And I'm like, no, I'll come back. And she's like, okay, then you can have the time. Wow. Yeah, because yeah. they were so desperate to not lose staff. Well, naturally, so, yeah, yeah. So i i did a I did a two year nursing or not nursing. I did a two year acting diploma wow. in Calgary here. Yeah. Can I can I ask you a bit about about growing up in a religious household? Because I too grew up in a very religious yeah. household. Um, oh, I knew it. How, I knew okay, it. Helen, how did you know it? How did you know it? <laughs> I saw your show. It's not an ignorant <laughs> show, sir. I told you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. You got to. You had some good theology in there. It was it was decent. The, so, yeah. You can only have that kind of theology if one you grew up with it, and it also helps to have a pre- mm-hmm. to be a preacher's kid. Oh my god! Really? You were a preacher's kid? No, my dad. My dad. I wasn't a oh. preacher's kid like growing up because you know the, those kids are insufferable. <laughs> Sorry to any actual preacher's kids who were kids when they were when they were children, right. but those kids. Yeah, are no, worse. they're terrible. Um, I. <laughs> I, uh, my dad didn't come a preacher till I was like in my, uh, my early teens. So. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah. Yeah. And that's when my dad stopped being a preacher was when I was 12. Mm. Yeah. So they like, kind of like high fived each other on the, in the way. No, they did. They, there was a yeah. little high five on as they passed each other. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, it's, it's, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's, there's a funny thing because I think, uh, a lot of times, in in some religious households, the arts are seen as not wholesome. Mm, mm-hmm. I think because of the whole um, 
there is the image of the decadent artist, right? Yeah. And there's, I mean, to, to give some of that credit, like there are certain circles that think that the debauched lifestyle is the only true way of self-expression. And, and, you know, so um, I don't know, I don't know how much I buy into that one way or the other. I think, I think you could be a a typically very liberal person and the best way for you to explore yourself is by containing some of your impulses or vice versa. It depends on the individual, but yeah, yeah. You know, you know, I knew people in when I was in high school who they sort of dabbled in in high school theater. But as soon as anything was like too secular for them, they were they were out. They were like, "No, I can't do this." Uh, you know, um, I knew one guy. He yeah. like, we were doing. I think we were yeah. doing Greece, and his character had to say, "Oh my god!" And he was like, "I can't do that." Oh my god! Yes. <laughs> and my. I almost wanted to say, yeah, but I think God knows that you're not saying it. The character's saying it. I don't think it counts, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's funny. So the the other sort of weird side to the story is, I ended up. I grew up in a very public school system. I was surrounded by um, dozens of religions and ethnicities and languages. I came like so. In some ways, I came from a very sheltered existence that way. Like. I was never part of the waspy white Mm. um, world. Uh, I was the odd man out amongst that. And so I went to college though, like this college here was um, a religious based school, like a faith based school. Mm. Um, The college itself was very religious. And then there was this weird drama program within it that was kind of its own like a cell of artsy weirdos that would, you know, yell fuck you across from the dean's office while they were doing <laughs> exercises. Um, but yeah, like, you know, some of those kids I think came from a much more stereotypical religious, religious background where like mm. the arts were bad, not because they would leave you impoverished, but because um, they would um, lead you into iniquity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so we did have some kids that were uncomfortable with like embodying mm. characters that did not, reflect their own world yeah. and i thought i just thought that was sad for them i think it is it is very limiting like if you are yeah. unable to because that shows that you you actually can't put your head into the the the, the headspace of somebody else which is a bit of a deficiency yeah. especially in this in this line of work yeah or i mean like i don't think that reflected the values of any of the people i knew mm. per se but there's also this idea of like only our story deserves yeah. to get told or only stories that look like me or sound like me are stories of value. And um, that I think is a lot more, um, I don't know, that's a much more insidious, nasty viewpoint, whether people actually articulate that or not. I think that's pretty dangerous, Yeah, you know? So um, yeah. And that was like, despite, uh, you know, the larger college as a whole where I went to, luckily the administrators in that small little cell of artists were like super cool not judgy definitely wanted to like have people explore other stories mm. and narratives and you know the fact that you liked jesus was sort of like awesome like that means you're going to expect a particular integrity of you as a person as you go into whatever mm. acting nice. hall you're gonna yeah be in, that is cool. pretty cool so i lucked out now when you made that transition from nursing to going back to to being an actor to want to to studying that um, did you did you personally yeah. have any difficulty? You mentioned having a, a a good blub after after that woman told you to follow your heart, and that God <laughs> knew that you should follow it. Um, yeah, was that was it a difficult thing for you to do to 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 go to finally do this? Yeah, it was. Um, I, I so the reason why I know I made the right decision. It was this compulsion, like I have to go do this thing, despite all of the alarm bells going off in my head, right? Despite the fear and the panic that I don't belong there. I think that was more of the the feeling was like, art is for a different class of people. It's for a different type of person. It's for people who look and act a certain way, which I didn't look and act like. It's for, for people who went to dancing lessons as kids because, you know, all this, like there's all these weird middle-class expectations to kind of weasel into what you think an artist looks like. And, you know, um, and having just been absolutely not middle-class, I just really, I really carried a lot of Hmm. of prejudice against myself and to the classroom. And so I think 
my like my biggest accomplishment for those two years that I was in school was being able to go like, hey, I'm just here. I want to see what happens to like mm. by the end. I was like, no, I'm an artist. So it was just sort of allowing myself to embrace that identity is like, that's who you are. And to say that, like, by the end of the two years I had reached there is such a gross overstatement. Like, I think it took me several years within the professional realm to really be able to embrace that identity as my own. Um, because, you know, when you really, when you really desire something and it, you kind of hold it up as this lofty thing, I think for anybody, it's easy to kind of say, well, I couldn't, you know, fill in the blank. And, and, um, and so, yeah, that's, that's kind of been, I think, you know, there are certainly acute peaks and valleys of that journey for me, but I still feel like I'm on that journey where I still am like, you know, do I deserve to be here? Do I deserve to participate? Um, in in this really fun way of expressing the human story sometimes. And I have to either convince myself or talk to my therapist. And like <laughs> and um yeah. So that's that's kind of the ongoing trajectory of that. I, I mean honestly the uh, there's there's enough imposter syndrome um that that the average person feels. There there there's for you it sounds like there's that additional thing of of growing up with these internalized ideas about what being an artist meant. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. And, um, and not to mention, not to mention the poverty thing, which is a real, that's a real struggle that so many artists, uh, actually deal with. And so, um, that's real. I am not uh, below the poverty line now. I've married a teacher. I can still jump into, the hospital and work as a nurse now. So like I am comfortably middle-class, which puts me very much better off than a lot of um, my compatriots in the theater. Sure. Um, so, you know, I'm aware that I am still choosing a particular level of, I was going to say comfort, but it, for me, it feels like a security thing where, you know, I know I'm going to pay my rent and I know I'm going to eat and I can go up for dinner if I want to oh, sure. and it won't break me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm in a similar boat where I have a day job and so I do yeah. my theater stuff in the evenings and that's when I create, you know, yeah. and, and, you know, as much as, as I sometimes think it would be great to do that full time, but then I also see my people who do that full time and the sacrifices that they make in terms of their living situation and the, and, 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 uh, even simple luxuries like going out for dinner. So it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's, well, yeah. And I, I think too, like I'm reaching the age where a lot of the artists close to my age or maybe even a bit younger, um, you know, in their mid to late thirties are a lot of the female artists I know are like, you know, I'm ready to have kids. Yeah. Can I afford to take enough time off to like carry this pregnancy to term, like, you know, cause you don't have a seven month old pregnant woman playing, you know, Gertrude. Yeah. You know, like, so the physical changes that happen to your body kind of eliminate, let alone the stamina and the energy that it requires to go through a show, but just the physical changes to your body kind of eliminate you from being able to be employed mm. Um, for several months of that pregnancy, let alone the recovery yeah. afterwards, you know, you're talking six to eight weeks just so you're not bleeding mm. anymore and, um, you can walk around. And so there's so many, there's so, I know so many female artists my age that are like, I want this and I don't know if I can afford it. Mm -hmm. And you're like, fuck, that is so messed up. Like um, you know, my husband and I are child free, but that is mm -hmm. by a choice, not by um limited yeah. circumstances. And the the fact that you have several artists that are like, you know, I I don't know if I sh I have to choose between my career or a family, or like I'm not sure if choosing a family at this point is smart. That just is yeah unfair. It's no. not cool. Um, so that's that's a real that's a real thing. I think. Anyway. I've also I've also watched a lot of a lot of people that that I know who are once they they start to get near their thirties or into their thirties they start to reconsider this whole actor life. <laughs> yes, that is happening a lot too. You know? Yeah, and suddenly you're like, yeah. wow, I would like to have things. Yeah, you know? or 
um, uh, a coworker of mine last year was like, you know what? Like we work 48 weeks a year, mm-hmm. six days a week. She said, I'm lucky to be employed that mm-hmm. much. So that's not really a complaint in the grand scheme of actors. Like I'm employed so much, but she's like, I work almost all year long, only one day off per week. Mm-hmm. And I am able to pay my bills and I have a car and all these other things. But she's like, I have no yeah. savings. We're never, we're never getting ahead. This is, yeah. this is it. And I don't really have anything more substantial besides, you know, not yeah. drowning to show for it. And like, I think that just keeping your nose above the water feeling that um, perpetual gig work gives people is a really shitty place to have to make any long-term yeah. plans from. So that makes sense for sure. Do you, do you feel like because of your upgr- upbringing that you, you're sort of acutely aware of the poverty that, that other people are feeling? Yeah. I want, I wonder. Um, yeah. I think, I think I just understand the anxiety on some level because now I'm actively pushing mm. against it. I, I think I see myself as actually a very privileged actor and like, you know, um, not that I'm in a place to be turning down roles, but I also like, no, <laughs> um, but like, it's also, um, you know, I don't feel that I have mm. to work 48 weeks of the year, you know, like if I was getting to a point where I'm like, fuck, I'm feeling burnt out. Like I need some time off. I'm going to take it. Like I have the luxury yeah. of doing that. Um, or like, I'm not super enthused about the show or even worse. Like, I think this show yeah. is shit but I have mm. to take it or I'm not right. going to pay my rent. Like I'm never in that situation. And yeah. So like, um, I have a lot of empathy for yeah. people that are in, in that. Mm. Yeah, for sure. I don't, and I don't know. I don't know if that's because of how, how I grew up or if it's actually just understanding that I'm no mm. longer in that place where I understand, mm. where I understand that a bit. Yeah. Now you uh you were in Toronto in the winter of all the times to 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 come to to Toronto <laughs> um, is in February. <laughs> um but you were in Toronto yeah. to do uh, a show at with Soul Pepper. Yeah. Yeah. And was that it was that that was a remount of something that you'd done previously or Yes. Yeah. So um I did the Virgin Trial with Soul Pepper in January um where I played Mary Tudor and joined the Stratford remount there. So, um, the, you know, the cast had all been able to come back, but, um, the, the actor Sarah Farb who'd played Mary Tudor in Stratford was, you know, in Broadway. Um, so she was not, um, (laughs) awesome. Uh, but she wasn't able to join. So they kind of did this like mad dash scan of, who knew the part well enough to just kind of be plunked in Mm -hmm. because it wasn't really a full rehearsal period or full full exploratory period because it was a remount. And so um, Kate Hedding, the playwright had known I had done it in Alberta with Alberta theater projects in Calgary here. And um, so she just put my name forward of like in the list of people that like knew the part and could like come in and uh, you know, had some basis of knowledge for who this character was and who her relationship with the rest of the cast was. And so that's how I got connected with that. Mm. So it was really like Kate got me the gig. (laughs) (laughs) And how long, how long were you in Toronto for? Oh, like um, end of December to I think the first or second week of February. God, just the worst time to be in Toronto is. You guys gave me a fucking polar vortex. Like, listen, we real. didn't do that on purpose. I just want to say, <laughs> just for the record, that it's not like we were digging that either. Just for the record. Now, of course, I know that anybody who lives in Edmonton or anybody yeah. who lives in in Winnipeg is like, "Fuck you, Toronto. That's not cold." Yeah, but it was cold. No, for that Toronto. was it was no, that was cold for anywhere. I have to say, because um, you know, I. Calgary gets cold. Yeah. It's not Edmonton cold, but like, you know, minus 40 a few times of the mm-hmm. some like the winter is not unusual and like minus 20 as a regular in the dead of winter is absolutely normal. Right. And so what I had heard about Toronto weather weather was that it was so much more temperate and <laughs> you know, maybe I wouldn't have to wear chapstick all the time oh. and all this other stuff. Bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. I go there and y'all had the Arctic Circle come down and hang out for a while and it was horrible. 
but great. Like, you know, yeah, and, but when, when you left it, 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 it went away. I'm sure. I think no, it did. It literally, it literally, uh, it followed me to Calgary. I think the week I got back <laughs> into Calgary, the polar vortex hit Calgary. And so we were like minus 40 the whole time. I was like, okay, whatever, whatever I did. I'm sorry. <laughs> But then you decided to come back to Toronto in the summer, which is a much better time to be here, although it is goddamn hot in the summer in Toronto. No, I loved it. Never apologize. Never (laughs) fucking apologize for that heat. I loved it. It was humid. Uh I was in my mid-20s before I realized there are parts of the world that got warm even when the sun wasn't out. (laughs) We're we're at such a high elevation in Calgary that if the sun is not out, it's in the mid to low teens. I shit you not. Right. And so, so, um, you know, even on warm, like on cloudy days where I'm like, oh, I I don't need a sweater when I leave in the morning. (laughs) It's just, it's inconceivable to me to not need three layers when you leave in the morning. And, uh, I loved it. I got the only like proper 10 of the year over there and it was hot almost all the day. I got back to Calgary. We had one day of 30 degrees and then it's been in the teens since then. And I was like, Oh my God. Oh my God. It's been a shit summer over here. Yeah. It's so bad. Um, but no, I, I like, it was gorgeous. And then, um, when we were done fringe, my husband and I toured around, you know, Southern Ontario for a while and saw the touristy things and, drank our way through Toronto is fabulous. I think that's a, that's a great, a great uh, uh, way to do it. And, and if, if you're on the fringe tour, you don't have time to do that. No, you really don't. I so. like, I was hustling my ass off, I think three or four hours a day, even on show days, just to mm-hmm. put bums in seats. So um, afterwards I was like, I deserve this. It's fine. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, uh, why don't we talk about the art of needing? Sure. Um, I'm curious about, uh, where that show came from for you right um so c portion a of this podcast um (laughs) uh the art of meeting had a few seeds of development it's a it's the story about three women who are struggling in some way or the other with their connection to poverty and feeding of kids and so um, obviously that's something that's very close to m- my heart and my history. Um, but, uh, I think, you know, there's a few, few drops in the bucket that inspired me. One was, you know, I was out with some high school friends a few years ago now, so this isn't even really that recent history, but, you know, uh, one of my friends was, I don't even know what B got into her bonnet, but she was going off about welfare people and like, how ignorant they were and how she was surprised they could even read a pamphlet about something or other and like how they just, you know, wanted handouts. And I like, I just turned to her and I was like, dude, like you're talking about my mom. Like that's not okay. And, um, and I was like, that's my story. You know that like you were in school with me in the midst of that. Like, what are you doing? And like, it got quiet and then somebody changed the subject. And, but like, you know, don't, don't talk shit about my mom. I do want to jump in and say that. I mean, that is something, the, the, the whole vilification of people who are, are on welfare or have been on welfare is one of those things that um, like I've had, like I've been on welfare and you yeah. know, it's, it, it serves a purpose and it's not just so that like, you know, as, as some would say, oh, people do, who don't want to work can buy smokes or whatever, but it like, it serves a literal purpose. And, but I've had, I've had instances where people have found out that I was on welfare and uh, like that sort of changed the relationship. Like I became a different yeah. person in their eyes because I'd be in a welfare. Yeah. I was terrified of that. Cause I, I grew up in um, a time and place in the country where like the premier of of Alberta walked up to a homeless man one day, like un unsolicited. Like actually here's the actual story. He was driving in his limo or sedan. Like he was being uh-huh. driven by a uh-huh. driver. So that's how the story got out. He made him stop. He got out of the backseat of the car, walked up to a homeless man, yelled at him in his face, told him to get a fucking job and then took a handful of heavy coins out of his pocket and threw them in the man's face and got back in the car. And that was the premier that I grew up with. And mm-hmm. there were so many more people applauding him than, than um, 
yeah. than is necessary. It didn't affect no. his popularity. If anything, it probably helped his popularity. And that was the most uh, important person um, with power uh, in the province for years and years and years. And that was... And so when I was doing this show and I'm like, I grew up on welfare. Here's my mom. I was literally like, I was inviting my work colleagues when I first premiered mm -hmm. this in Calgary. I was inviting my work colleagues and people I didn't know that well to come see it. And I was like, they may fucking hate me. Mm. Like they may hear this story and just hate. Like I didn't know before I had done the show, I didn't know mm. how it was going to be received. And I, and like there was three or four times where I was like, I shouldn't do this show. I, this is dumb. And, you know, I don't, I don't want my esteem and my colleagues eyes to go down and all this other stuff. But I think really what pushed me to do this show is that everyone, including myself, knows the story of the story of someone, some mm -hmm. woman, because it's always a woman, uh, some woman who had seven kids and is on the dole making $40,000 a month <laughs> um, off the government's grant. Like everyone knows some, somebody, uh, why welfare mm -hmm. or age or whatever social assistance program is bunk because they know this one person or they don't know, but their cousin knows or their neighbor knows someone. It's always, it's always a friend of a friend or I heard from a friend of a friend that they yeah. know somebody. Yeah. And um, so they all know someone like that. And, uh, Regard like I could go up to them and I could say, actually, that's not statistically accurate. And actually, most people on welfare that can work are. And, you know, I can say that or I can offer them a story. Yeah. And it's my mother's story. And it's about the working poor. And the fact that my mother's story and our story is not unusual in that who we were and what we needed and why we were there is not was not at all uncommon to people mm. in the mid eight nineties like mm -hmm. um, it was for us. We were so typical. That's the pain. Like we're there's nothing special about my family, mm. and there's nothing special about how we got. Which is why I also don't talk about how we got out. I don't talk about the fact that my mother was a pastor's wife because I did in my first iteration, and I was worried that I was um, I was. Uh, I, what's the word I'm looking for? Like morally trying to like give her more credit. Like oh, yeah, the, yeah, amb yeah. the ambiguity of whether or not my sisters and I came from the same father is left in the current draft because it doesn't fucking matter. No. What you're dealing with is someone who had the tenacity and the responsibility of choosing to raise children mm. and whoever the fathers were, were clearly not interested in participating in that. Right. And yet we have children that need food and we punish the one parent who's decided to make sure that they have it versus the one parent who fucked right. off. And so I just don't like, so it's not interest. It's not interesting to me. Like, well, what kind of, she must be a particular wonderful person. If you're not, you know, white trash or whatever the fuck that even means. Um, uh, so I'm just, I'm not interested in telling that story. I'm just interested in saying, here's the story of a woman that really needed welfare and she took it, and it was awful. Um, but without it, we may have grown up on right. the streets. Without it, I don't even—I can't even fathom to think about where we would be. We may have even been in foster mm. care, um, and not growing up together because you know, in the '90s, four dollars and fifty cents was the minimum right. wage, and so uh, that's—you cannot raise three children on no. that much money. You can't even raise no. yourself on that much money. But um, so. You know, that's that was the impetus for my show. Is I was like, I can counter this narrative in two seconds if you'll give me if you'll give me the podium, um, and and it was also sort of this. Uh, I was looking for something to write about, and I wrote this essay one day about you know I have nothing to say. That was the title of my essay. I was like, fuck, what the fuck am I going to write about? I have nothing to say. I'm middle class. I'm white. I'm cis. I'm straight. Like the fuck. Yeah. But the, you know when I. When I wasn't any of those, like, you know, I've always been white, but like, <laughs> when I didn't have, when I didn't have any privilege, that's when I needed to tell my story. And yet, because I didn't have privilege, I couldn't tell my story. And so it kind of, it kind of devolved into that of going like, oh, fuck. Now that I have privilege, now that I have a podium and I have an education and a diploma, which says I am, you know, worthy to take the stage and to... Um, tell you a story in a compelling way and or whatever and I have the training to allow me to do that and like 
now, after I'm no longer in need, I can tell you about being in need. And, um, and so the irony of that really struck me. And I think that kind of, so it's just a few things kind of coalescing together. It happened to be also, you know, a couple months after Mm -hmm. Donald Trump's election and everybody's like, well, it's poor white people that Mm. got him there. And it's like, Oh, great. One more thing. One more thing that we're responsible yeah, for. Another thing. Yeah. 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 Mm. So yeah, it was just, just a lot of stuff. Obviously, like, I mean, I'm still very, I get geared up. I like writing and making shows about things that piss me off. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so the general ignorance about what the welfare state actually looks like and how it's not a picnic and, um, and how dehumanizing it can actually be um, and how poverty is not a moral issue. It is a systemic and financial one. Um, yeah. that's a, that's something that pisses me off and it gets me riled up. And so that's something good for me to write about. What, um, uh, what I'm curious about the, your, your writing process, uh, for this solo show. Um, do you, did you, do you sit down and you just start writing and you wrote, did you write right from beginning to end? how does, how does writing a solo show look like for you? Um, I've never been a linear writer. I, um, I've always enjoyed it. I kind of use that, you know, term loosely, but like, you know, in school, I wouldn't do it on my own, but like once we were assigned something, I'd be like, okay. Um, but I've, I've never been linear. So I have an idea in my head. I write what the idea is, and then I can kind of spread out, spread out from there. Um, which is not to say like, I don't, I don't know where the story is going and I don't, necessarily even know where it begins but I know there's a core thesis in there and so that's kind of uh that's kind of where it begins so for me I you know my writing process for this show was you know that I have nothing to say sort of essay that I wrote myself and then I was like oh I shit I gotta I gotta tell my family story a little bit um but I was also terrified I think I've told you this before, but I was terrified of like doing one of those one woman shows where you just like take yourself so seriously and you end up weeping in yes. a spotlight alone over a candle mm-hmm. and like just feeling all of your feelings and everybody else in the audience is feeling really uncomfortable <laughs> as you go through this um, purging uh, experience. Yes. So yeah. I was like, how do I deflect that a little bit? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm feeling very exposed. And so um, I had seen this really brilliant one man show called seven guitars by Chase Paget a few years prior. And, uh, and he plays, you know, seven guitars and he plays seven different characters with those guitars. And I was like, Oh fuck. Like I can, I can split this narrative up. I can, it doesn't have to just be my, my myself and my mom and our story. It can there's so many other perspectives um, that you can include in this that will shine lights in different ways mm. on this. And so that's what inspired me to kind of go ah, like I can do it with other ways. So so then realizing that it didn't just have to be about me, I was like okay, and who else can it be about? So usually it just starts with like a character monologue or what's what's the part of that character that sticks out to me the most. And then I, I write something down from mm. that perspective. So, yeah. Cause I, I, I mean, when I write a solo show, I write it nonlinear. In much oh, really? Like I write, nice. Yeah. I write, I have a notebook. I fill that notebook and I, whatever idea comes, I write, I try to write as much of it as I can and it's all over the place. And then I try to, I type <laughs> all of that out and try to see what's there. And then I do that same thing to another notebook. But when I write it, <laughs> When I write a straight play, like just a regular play, I write from beginning to end. So they're they're different processes for me for some reason. Yeah, I think I think knowing that you're going to play all the characters might influence mm. that a little bit. Yeah, because you know when you you yourself as an actor approach the characters from somewhere in your like yeah. gut, and so then you can write like that too somewhere in my gut. Versus, I think a play you have to be like okay, my gut, but like, how would this impact somebody else's gut? And I need to support mm-hmm. that kind of with, with more understanding because I, I can't just, I, unlike a one person show where the links between the characters and links between the themes is a lot more intuitive. Mm-hmm. I think for me, you know, if I'm doing, if I'm writing for other people, I need to make it less intuitive and more uh, overt so that they yeah. can follow along or not overt in like a, and that's no, no, the moral no, no, of, of the story, but. When you are like, when did, when, how did, what was the, did it, did this show premiere at a fringe or did you like self produce? How did, what was its, what, how did it premiere? 
Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't work without deadlines. I'm so freaking lazy. Um, so, uh, I was like, Oh, I have this idea. And it's like just after the American election, which just happens to be around the time where everybody's asking for fringe applications. I was like, fuck, this is a good idea. Okay. And so I like, I put all my names in all the boxes and like saw which one actually, I don't even know if I went that far. I think it was like Calgary, Edmonton, maybe the calf lottery is all I applied for that year. Um, and I mm-hmm. just got the Calgary lottery, which was fine. Keep it local, keep it simple, because again, this might be a piece of shit mm-hmm. by the end of it. Um, and so then I had about, yeah, like nine months to, to write and mm-hmm. develop and produce a show after that. So, but I, I need the fear sure. or it doesn't get done. The fear of public embarrassment is a really good <laughs> And what, what, and then, so you did, how long ago was that premiere? Was it a year ago, two years ago? 2017. 2017. And so, uh, what made you want to, was it, what made you want to do it again? Well, I, I did it in Calgary and then, um, it, it was very well received here again, like much to my surprise. And so, um, word had gotten around to the, um, artistic producer of the one act, um, company here in town. Um, and so, uh, I contacted her and she's like, well, yeah, I've heard good things about your show and we would love to invite you to come develop it with us. And I was like, holy shit. So, um, that 2018 interim year, actually, I was able to like take it in the spring and, um, they paid me to like develop it. What? (laughs) Yeah. Right. Right. Some people pay me to write plays. What? It's crazy. That's insane. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> their, um, their play development series is awesome. So, like, I went in. They gave me a director slash dramaturg and an actor mm. to play me. So, all I could do is just put on my writing cap and, like, listen to somebody else say my words. And, like, fo- like I've never had a writing experience like that in my life. That was so simple. And, like, I wasn't producing and acting at the same time. Mm. And, like... It felt like a vacation. It was so great. <laughs> so um, I took my, you know, my rough, fringy version and, um, you know, the things I didn't like. And I refined it. Like my first version of the show, I had a, a chef puppet that was made out of a dishwashing <laughs> glove. And, like, he didn't make the cut. <laughs> I, was, I don't recall uh, a, the chef puppet in, in the version that I saw. So obviously no. the puppetry didn't make it. <laughs> I didn't make it mostly because I'm a really shit puppeteer. <laughs> I think uh, bless my director for, you know, trusting me to try it out, but I was not mm-hmm. good. Um, but yeah. So then, you know, I got to work on that for a couple of weeks in the studio with them. And then by the end of the summer, I, you know, submitted my final draft to them and, and yeah. So um, lunchbox theater in Calgary was like super instrumental in refining it. So I think once I had the, the second, you know, professional version of it um it was just like and i think with calgary and stuff i was like oh no this show's got legs like i this is this is good like i can take this to places it will find an audience it will resonate with people people won't think i'm a piece of shit by the end of it um they may not like it but like you know they're not gonna be like oh um and so uh so i was like oh yeah like i'm gonna try it out on some other folks until I find, until I find somebody that'll produce it for me. I want to produce it myself because I really believe in it. And then uh, you entered it in the Toronto lottery. I did. Yeah. I got into Toronto and Edmonton this year. Um, But then I got, I got my equity gig. So I had to pull out of Edmonton, but Toronto was still, Toronto was still on the table. I was actually on the wait list for Toronto. Um, and then they called me a month before friends. Oh my God, that's right. That's why you, you weren't in the program. So you, you had the, the worst, the worst case scenario as far as going into the Toronto fringe is, is that not only like you, you get, you get the message a month before where already ever like all the, all the media people have decided what shows they want to recommend. You're not even in the, in the program and Oh my God. That is, yeah, that is the no, worst I, deficit ever. <laughs> it was bad. And like, my, I talked to my husband and I was like, dude, like, we're not even going to be in the fucking program. Like, should we do this? And he's, he's looking at me. He's like, you want to go to Toronto? I was like, yeah, I do. And he's like, <laughs> let's fucking do it. So it's like, in some ways it was kind of nice because we're like, look, like, this is going to be an uphill battle the whole time. Who cares? Like, let's just go mm. have fun spend our summer in Southern Ontario, 
go hang out, see some shows that we'd not be able to see otherwise. And, and then I also get to like continue to develop this show that I sure. love. And I yeah, appreciate yeah, that's great. everything. And um, if I get some recognition or some buzz around it, all the better. But like, that's not what brought us out there. Is it was just like we we needed this. We needed the opportunity. And I I think Owen, my hubby, was also very intuitive, and he was like, "You just need to know that you can go and take this risk, and know that you will lose money on it, and still be okay with that." Like again, he he he's really good at challenging me about you know financial risks because. I'm a lot more skittish about that right. stuff. And he's like, babe, even if we lose money, we'll be okay. You will not be on the street, even if this is a bust. Like, go stretch, explore, lose the money, we'll be fine. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so so that was kind of part of that too. Yeah, I do just, think I do think that yeah. that 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 is sort of an important part of of a, a performer's life to is one thing to do your show at home. Mm-hmm. It's another thing entirely to do it somewhere else and to, yeah. to take it um, on the road and take it somewhere where they don't, nobody knows you and that sort of thing, which is, which is, you know, it's, it's a, it's an important challenge and it, it, it shows you <laughs> that you can do it. Yes. Yeah. Just even if, if you, if, even if you go and you tank, like knowing that you can go experience failure and still survive and you're like, Oh fuck. Like, yeah, it sucks, but it wasn't the end of the world. Yeah. Like, um, that's such an important life lesson uh, to know that you can do that, and the world doesn't collapse under you, and you're still standing on the ground afterwards. Like, that's important. I always think that that one of the most important things that anybody doing a show and self-producing in general, but doing a show in the fringe where there's there's so many other shows at the same time, and there's all that. You did the thing. Like you wrote this thing, you made this thing, you performed this thing that puts you You so far ahead of, of so many other people who only wish they'd done the thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I genuinely think if I hadn't come out to the, to Toronto, particularly this year when I did have a little bit of like energy from soul pepper Mm. behind me. And so I really would have, I really would have regretted it. I would have said like, that was an opportunity you wasted. And, and, uh, so yeah, I'm super glad. Good. Good. So after the yeah. show that you're doing right now, what's what what comes after that? Uh, I've got a I've got a few weeks off. I will probably hop into the hospital and uh, make some mm-hmm. good coin, and then I'm I've got a Christmas show with Lunchbox oh, nice. Theater. Um, yeah, so like you know mid mid November to the end of the year, I'm I'm nice. hanging out with them. That's, that's so. fun. That's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. It's nice. Well, Helen, thank you so much for for talking with me today. Bill, that was lovely. Thank you. This has been a Homebody Productions production.